Hello and welcome to Access Chat. I'm delighted that we're joined today by John Samuel. John is the co-founder and CEO of Abler. So welcome, John. Uh, it's great to have you with us. And you're joining us from North Carolina today. So um, it's what, 10 a.m., 10.30 a.m. Um, so I'm hoping you've had some coffee and you're all revved up and ready to go. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself, how you came to work in accessibility and 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 what for our audience Abler is and, and what you do. No, oh, perfect. Thank you so much, Neil, for having me here. I'm super excited. So my story really kind of leads into the formation of Abler, which is a disability inclusion and accessibility uh, firm. But it really started when I was in college. And, and when I was in college, my freshman year of college in, in Virginia Commonwealth University, I was diagnosed with a degenerating eye condition called retinitis pigmentosa and was told I was going blind. And as a young person, it was devastating news. And I was ashamed and embarrassed. And um, my actions led to me failing out of college. I moved back home to North Carolina. I didn't want to tell anyone what had happened to me. And uh, I, I eventually enrolled in classes at NC State University. I found a loophole. And I took uh, these classes through a continuing education program. Eventually, I took so many classes through that program, they had to let me into a full-time program. And uh, I eventually graduated. But I knew uh, growing up in North Carolina, you know, there's really you know, only one way of getting around, and that was driving. And I was still driving, even though I was losing my sight. And it wasn't safe for me, or and it wasn't safe for other people on the road. And so I decided to move out of North Carolina. And I moved to Bangalore, India, and because I knew I could get a car and driver there pretty cheap. And, uh, and I did that for two years. But I decided to come back home to the U.S., move to New York City. And in New York, I was working for the city of New York, providing financial education for city employees. But I was living paycheck to paycheck. I was living in Manhattan. It was so expensive. And but when I was looking at my friends around me, their career trajectories were just a lot different. They were either going to grad school or they were going to uh, moving up in their companies. And I just didn't see the same type of future for myself. And that's when I reconnected with a gentleman named Steve Clemens, who I worked with in India. And he was now on the board of directors of a cell phone tower manufacturing company. And they wanted to start a company in Cameroon, which is in West Central Africa. And when I heard about this, I said, send me out there. Give me a chance. I can do this. And, and Steve knew I had some sort of eye condition, but he didn't know the extent of it. But he agreed. And so when I went to go sign my contract, the investors of the company found out that I couldn't see. And they said, hey, we can't send you out to, to West Africa if you can't see. I pleaded with them. And they said, all right, we'll give you six months and we'll go our separate ways. I said, fine. So I took a $20,000 investment. I left Manhattan. I moved to Douala, Cameroon to go start this new telecom infrastructure company, building cell phone towers in, in, in a country I had never been to before. I hadn't even seen a cell phone tower at the time, but uh, I went there to go build these and uh, built a team around me once I got there on the ground. And my team and I, we had immediate success. And within the next uh, 14 months, we generated $12 million in revenue, $2.4 million in profit. And uh, over the next three years, spread that across the continent. But I built the team around me, really designed in a way to hide the fact that I couldn't see because I kept it a secret out of my own safety of my own life. And so my team, we, it was something we never talked about, but it was really about you know building a team that was um, I could trust. But after three years, I decided, uh, just like my friends in New York, I could go to grad school. So I moved to Washington, D.C. to do my MBA. And I was at this orientation event. And, um, uh, and it was, it was, uh, they had these name cards where you're supposed to go sit and I couldn't see where I was supposed to go. So I turned to the person next to me and happened to be the Dean of the business school. And she, uh, 
she had no idea that I couldn't see. She was the one who recruited me there, but she could empathize with what I was going through because she actually had a child with special needs. And she encouraged me to be open about my my visual impairment with my classmates. And so I was, and I often say that was the first time I could be my true self and my authentic self. And I was able to open up my heart and I met my wife in the MBA program. And, uh, and, uh, but afterwards, you know, even though I was open about talking about my visual impairment with my classmates and my personal life, I was scared that companies would see it as a liability. And so I struggled to find a job right after my MBA. And I eventually landed on my feet with a, uh, a private equity investment company. And, uh, but after three years, that company folded and I was out of a job again. And uh, at this time, my wife and I had just built a house in the Washington, D.C. area, and we just had a baby, both of which are not cheap. And so I, uh, I, I and now the stress of it all caused my sight to go even faster and I could no longer see the computer screen. And I thought my, my career was over. And that's when I heard about this software that was developed at a company called SAS, which is a data science company. And they designed this software to help people who are blind and low vision visualize graphs and charts using sounds. And I thought it was so cool. But what was really cool was the guy who designed it. His name was Ed Summers, and he had the same eye condition as me and lived in my hometown of Cary, North Carolina, the same place I never thought anyone who was blind could ever live. And so, and up until that point, I had never met another blind person. So I was like, I got to get in touch with this guy. And I tried for two months without any luck. And then finally, um, my wife said, if he can live in North Carolina, maybe we can too. So we found a house online, told my folks. They got so excited because they never thought I was coming home. And my parents immediately jumped in the car to go look at this house. And as my dad's driving, he's talking to us on the phone. And he started yelling at something. I was like, what are you doing, dad? He's like, oh, there's a blind guy on the road. Maybe this guy you're trying to get in touch with. It's like, oh, dad, please don't yell blind people on the road. And he's like, all right, gets out of the car, walks over to this poor guy and says, are you Ed Summers? And the guy says, uh, yes, I am. And my dad just puts a phone in this poor guy's ear. And, and uh, after apologizing to him, he agreed to meet me. And I came down uh, that next weekend. And uh, a 30-minute conversation turned to three hours. But what Ed showed me was that my career wasn't over. And he introduced me to the world of accessibility. And uh, fast forward, he introduced me to an organization called LCI, which happened to be the largest employer of Americans who are blind. And we're based seven miles from where I grew up. And uh, they, they were primarily a manufacturing company, but they wanted to create a new business that would create upper mobility for people who are blind. And so I joined the company tasked with that. And, uh, and, uh, and I knew uh, the first thing we had to do was address the the digital accessibility barrier that was hindering a lot of people. And, um, and uh, eventually that became Abler. It's a long story but to get where we are. No, yeah. but it's a, it's a fascinating <laughs> one. And, and I love the circuitous route through which we all end up in this industry because um, for the most part, most of the people working here, it's not their first career. And yeah. it's certainly not um, something you sort of grow up with. Oh, you know, I want to work in accessibility. That's not, <laughs> You know, that's not your childhood aspiration. Um, right. So, so and I think it, it, it's it's interesting that you had the background in India and the, the you, it's not uncommon amongst the people that I talk to regularly with uh, degenerative eye conditions that they hide it. So, oh, yeah. so there's some commonality in that. But it was interesting you said that, you know, that it was the first blind person you'd met. So that that sort of sense of segregation i think is a thing that is interesting to unpack because if that happens to you that must be happening to hundreds and millions of people around the world and that must have been tremendously isolating so so 
whilst you're working on the assistive tech, are there also things that you could advise to people or, or, or think about how you might bring the community together so that people didn't feel that they had to be hiding it or felt that, that you know, connecting people with similar conditions so that they can, you know, have that Ed to talk to or that yeah. John to talk to so that, that, that there's someone that, you know, really understands and empathizes with the condition. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> that's why I try to share my story as much as I can because my story isn't one of somebody who's a, you know, nothing against para athletes, but I'm not a, I'm not special. I'm not, I'm not a great athlete. I'm not a, you know, I was, I failed out of college. Like my story, I feel I can relate to a lot of people because you know, I've gone through that and, and, and I hope by sharing it, people can empathize with that and, and understand it. But, you know, I mean, even at Abler, you know, we realized it was even my own life um, experiences that it, we're not just a disability include, I mean, a, a digital accessibility firm, but we realized there was three major barriers that hindered me in my life. And that was the, you know, the digital divide. And then the second piece was the mindsets of people. And so we realized we had to change that, the change mindsets of people and organizations. Because when I used to go in for app, like job interviews, you know, companies didn't know how to deal with somebody who couldn't see. And I didn't know how to advocate for myself. So we're really trying to work on changing the mindsets of people and organizations. And then finally, creating pathways for employment. Because you know, I kept on, I had the privilege of being able to travel around the world and take that risk because I grew up, you know, uh, having that confidence, but I know that everyone doesn't have that, that experience. And, um, and so I think by sharing the story and, you know, helping, you know, others to break down those barriers, that's really how we're trying to do that right now. But, you know, it's opportunities like this to be on your, your show right now, um, that I hope that we can, we can reach more people. And so that you don't have to feel so isolated. Because for years, I felt like I had a mask on my face because I was just portraying what I thought an executive was. But if I can show that an executive can be blind, um, I hope that that can change uh, someone's you know viewpoint. And absolutely, they can. You're living proof that, that you can. <laughs> and um, I think that there's a multiplicity of different things and really valuable insights that people with disabilities can bring to management um, and creativity being a key part of that because you have to problem solve. I love yes. the fact that you um, went to India just yes. because you can get a driver. <laughs> Driving is really important to me. What do I do? I'm going to move continent. I thought, I thought that was really... I thought that was really interesting. I can get a cheap driver right there. So it's not, I'm, it's not, right, well, let's think about you know, other you know, planet-friendly mobility solutions. I'm going <laughs> to disappear off and I'm going to get myself a, a chauffeur. Yeah, credit exactly. To you. I credit to you. Um, <laughs> well, that was the funny thing was like my, yeah. I took a salary, a local salary in India. So my salary was $500 a month. And my okay. driver made $100. And, wow. uh, and so, you know, that's, that's what I had to do. I mean, so what, 20% of my salary is going to my transportation. And, uh, you know, it, it wasn't, uh, you know, the, you know, it, you have to be able to have that confidence to take that risk. But I think that's, that suited me well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, Antonio, did you have a question? You look like you were about to come in. <laughs> You're muted, by the way. No, uh, and so uh, reflecting a little bit in, in your in your life story, and so what when you have to deal you know with customers on the on the daily basis, and I 
what are the things that in which your you find that your experience and your story uh, brings value f- for them to understand the importance of accessibility? Yeah, <clears throat> and I think I, I, I correct you, Brian. Like, you know, I think that you know, from an accessibility issues, like you know, whether we talk about it from a digital perspective or we talk about it from a physical environment, you know, like growing up in North Carolina there was no public transportation. So that was an accessibility barrier for me. But, you know, what really kind of, you know, when I met Ed and he showed me that, you know, accessibility would allow me to do my job, whether it be, you know, because one of the pieces of advice he gave me is like, you got to learn to learn as a blind person. And I started thinking about that. I was like, what does that mean? And I started to think about how to use assistive technologies. And for years, I hid the fact that I wasn't even using a cane. So my shins were a constant, you know, uh, splattering of bruises and cuts, and my face was all cut up. And so once I started using the the assistive technology, the screen reader, you know, I realized how that changed my life. And then I started using a cane. And so that improved the accessibility in my daily life because all of a sudden I was able to have that mobility. I was able to have that autonomy, and I was able to do things again. And so I was able to, it's so fun. I talk about this often is that my Uber rating before I disclosed, you know, started using a cane and, uh, and sharing the fact that I couldn't see my Uber rating was around a 4.6. But the moment I got a cane, I didn't have to explain to the Uber driver why I couldn't find them or why, you know, all the issues of me getting into the car, et cetera. And my rating went up to a 4.99. But I think that that's just an example of, you know, daily life, how, you know, uh, my learnings have improved my accessibility. Uh, not only from a digital perspective, but from a from a uh, overall life perspective. I think that's a, you know, a useful point of point of learning. Um, I think that I'm really really interested in the the sonification of charts and and complex yeah. accessibility work that you were talking about. So maybe we could explore that a little bit more because you know. As an assistive technologist by background, I've been sort of playing with assistive tech for a long time. Yeah, charts and sonification are are some of the uh, the areas that you know for screen reader users. Those complex graphics and and visual representations are really really challenging. So, so can you explain for the audience a bit more about that kind of work and 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 how you can translate something that is you know extremely visual and, and and not just not just sort of one visual representation but a lot of complexity and a lot of information contained within that visual into sound yeah so for people who don't know what the sonification is like so let's say you see a chart and they would use different tones to be able to describe it so as a visual person you can see it you can quickly see this information you can see the chart goes up then comes down then goes back up so that would be sound like and so that sounds would allow us to understand just as way, you know, you can visually see this data represented. We can hear it in a way uh, using different tones. And, and it's, it was really cool to me to see that. And so, you know, Ed Summers, who created this over at SAS, because when I was doing my MBA, I was using SAS and I was taking a data modeling class and I had to drop out of it because I couldn't do it anymore because I could not see my graphs and charts and the professors didn't know, you know, they tried their best to help make it accommodating to me, but it wasn't, but you know, that's when I met Ed, it really kind of, um, it really, it really spoke to me because, you know, careers in finance were something I was very interested in before. And, uh, 
And I didn't think I could go into those type of roles because I couldn't deal with graphical interpretation or data representation. And uh, all of a sudden using sound to be able to do that was, was novel to me. And so even over the last year, I worked with an organization who was talking about sonification in news media and trying to use, you know, uh, graphs like in uh, like a podcast format, how do we use sonification to represent data? And it's, it's really cool um, how we can, you know, represent data, not only from a visual standpoint, but from a, from a sound way. Yeah. And, and I, I know that, um, you know, the, that this access to this data can be really fundamental in terms of yes. you know, um, access to financial information for personal finance, for example. So I know oh, yeah. um, I remember seeing a demonstration at HSBC where they were, which is a, a global bank, where they were yep. showing you know interest rates and so on and and the sonification, and so people were under able to understand you know the rise and fall of of interest rates and and bank balances and shares yeah. and all this kind of stuff by listening to the sounds. Um, so what, I mean, and, and, and so, you know, something like a, a sort of a chart tracking share prices for some, for something is relatively simple in that you yeah. can, you can, you know, you can easily translate the sort of visual peaks and troughs for peaks and troughs in, um, in noise, you know, you can go up in pitch and down in pitch, and yeah. and, it, and and your brain can easily sort of map the two across, if you like. What are some of the challenges of, of and how do you represent slightly more complex data? Um, and and is this an area that you're you're still researching? Yeah. So when I was working with that or the news media who was doing the research over the last year, what we realized was that when you had multiple data sources, right? So and then comparing the two. So meaning if you have two different uh, data you're trying to represent at the same time was that got very complicated. You know, you could use different, you could use a piano tone versus a, you know, a violin, but that that was, you know, to be able to do that and also to set the, uh, what is a medium? What is a, what is that median point? And so we realized that there is some complexity to this. You know, you have to, it's something that is, it, I think is being, is being worked on, but um I think with more research, we can do this. We're, and that means getting more users in, more user testing and to, to go through it. But I think, you know, we're going to see some more. I think we're because it's not only going to benefit people who are blind, it's going to benefit everybody. You know, like if we're on, like I said, like on a podcast or, you know, if you're also in a meeting and you don't have time, you know, you're, you know, looking at data, it can be, you know, sometimes you see so many charts, you want to be able to represent it by hearing it. It could be a, a good way. So I think it goes back to universal design of being able to represent data in multiple ways. But I think, again, going back to user testing, that's what's going to have to happen. Antonio, did you want to come in? <laughs> no, uh, I, I was... no. Uh, looking at you know where we are where we are today in in terms of uh, inclusion in in terms of uh, uh, in terms of accessibility and yeah. and how can that uh, impact impact innovation so uh, looking how, how do you see the 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 uh, in, in the importance of organizations to to considering uh, accessibility as part of their uh, innovation efforts, uh, not only to create better products, but also to better uh, uh, engage with uh, and open the door to, to new types of customers. 
Yeah, no, that's a great question. So I actually just like last November, I did a TED talk uh, called The Idea of Belonging. And so the idea was inclusion, diversity, equity, and accessibility. And I think when you're able to start to build a culture of belonging, you you bring more people to the table. And when we have more people in the design phase who are in the you know, who have a seat at the table and, be, and being heard, then we can have that new innovation, right? And not only, and that innovation is not only going to help you know one set of group of people, you know, it's going to help all people. And I think that it goes back to that, you know. It has to be part of your fundamental. I mean, we're, there's lots of discussion about diversity, equity, and inclusion. But if we really want to be truly, you know, um, welcoming of all people, you got to add that accessibility because you know, that that diversity of thought is critical. And people with disabilities, as we talked about it before, right, Neil? You mean the the, the natural problem solving abilities of individuals with disabilities is such a valuable um, uh, trait, and that can add a lot of value in terms of innovation. And so. I think, you know, and that innovation is not only going to be, it's not only like the right thing to do or, you know, the inclusive thing to do, but it actually makes business sense. And I think that companies now are starting to see that. And it's, it's super exciting. We know that in the United States, there's a kind of a, a long story of litigation within, within the accessibility. Yeah. Um, uh, we know that you know some countries uh, in other parts of the world there's a, a, a more uh, optic of education for for accessibility. What are your views on that? Yeah, I, I don't like to lead with a, with the litigation component because you know my whole thought process has been I don't want to drive a wedge between the you know the disability community and those without disabilities, but. You know, in some cases, dis- I mean, litigation is a, it's a, it's a way to open up. It, it forces people to open up their eyes and, and to be able to look at it. But, you know, I think if we can, we talk about, you know, uh, a lot of a- a education in, in kids, we talk about science, technology, and uh, engineering and mathematics. But I'll, if you think about those STEM careers and what we're educating people, young people, if we can start to, you know, provide them proximity to those with disabilities and understand the challenges that people face and empathy. And uh, I think that if we can start with the younger folks and, and change the mindset that we raise, you know, people, uh, you know, as we raise children, that that can also have a big impact. Because one of the things I, uh, I, I talk about also is that I have two young kids. I have a five-year-old and a three-year-old kid. And so I used to take them, you know, before COVID, take them to their classroom. And once I'd go into the classroom with my cane, it was so amazing. All these young kids going, jumping up and down. Oh, what is this? Asking me all these questions about my cane. And, you know, I talked to them about what I do and how I navigate. I showed them my watch and all these different things. And it was really cool for them. But, you know, often the case when I'm walking down the road and a child is holding their parent's hand and the kid starts looking. I say, oh, mommy, what's that? What's that? The parents like no no don't look no don't ask just let's, let's go and they kind of rush them off. It's that kind of um, you know mentality. If we can have a, a, a open dialogue and create that education, I think that's really where we're going to have more um, um, you know more true inclusion. And I think that it's not just with children, but it's it's all people. I think that's that's, that's very true. Um, I'm keen to ask questions and I'm keen to be asked questions because I think that to not ask leaves us ignorant and you know we only move the needle forwards if we're prepared to have that dialogue and yes sometimes it may be tiring and maybe like for the 80th time today being asked (laughs) how do you use your cane you're probably sick of it on one particular occasion but at at, at the same time 
you are fostering a mindset where people understand why you have it, what benefits it, it gives to you, and 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 so so we ought not to crush that childhood curiosity. And, exactly. And as adults, we ought not to feel quite so inhibited to ask the questions either, because I think that you know kids innately do it, and it's it's the fear of upsetting people. That that I think genuinely um, puts people off because they're, they're 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 worried about being embarrassed because it's some, you know they ask a question that's stupid or whatever. I think that that most people that I talk to in in this community are open to being asked questions if people are doing it out of a willingness to learn. That's correct. Right. You know, so, yeah, I, yeah, I mean, I've seen that so much throughout my life. Was that it's that fear of saying the wrong thing because. You know, when I, before I got the cane and I'd go to networking events, uh, you know, I couldn't make eye contact and, you know, people would be smiling and I couldn't see them. And then they thought I was a jerk. And so then when I got the cane, I was like, oh, this is going to now make it so clear. People are like, oh, I understand, I understand now why he can't see my, see, you know, isn't making eye contact or he's not smiling or he's not, you know, shaking my hand. But what I realized was that people, when they saw the cane, it became this new barrier. People were staying away from me. And I was like, what is going on here? Why are people not talking to me now? They know I can't see. And so I realized that the cane became this barrier. And so I actually launched a contest a couple of years ago. In 2020, we did our first Drip My Cane. So we had people come up and, uh, you know, we had designers from all over the world design my white cane. Because to me, it was this, this beautiful white canvas. And we wanted people to design it because I wanted it to become a talking piece. I wanted it to be something that people felt comfortable because art is something that brings people together. Why, if my cane is a piece of art that still serves my purpose of helping me in my mobility and my navigation, you know, but if it can have something to have people start talking and break down that barrier, that's, that's, that's what it's about. So, you know, I, I'm so happy when people do come and ask questions and talk, because like I said, that's how we spread the word and raise awareness for disability inclusion. Well, I think you just hit on inadvertently hit on another area which I, I find really interesting, and that is um, customization and personalization of our sort of disability tech, and the fact yeah. that um, that a lot of this stuff is is horribly utilitarian and really yeah. sort of lumpily designed. It, 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 you know, it's definitely following the sort of medical device model rather right. than the sort of personal. Uh, empowerment model uh, you know so you know I look at stuff for the built environment and, and you know you go into an older person's bathroom and they may have spent thousands on on you know a, a nice shower suite and tiles and everything and then you've got this enormous plastic grab rail there yeah. that, that looks completely incongruous yeah you know why do we have to design stuff for disability that looks horrible because there's no need for it we can we yeah. can make stuff that's beautiful too so i think that that you know there's definitely a movement for people to customize their own kit i mean there's numerous people on twitter that are showing off their di- various different canes you know there's tara moss being a, a good example who's a, an author and disability advocate she's got various different canes she has um you know fantastic um skins for her wheelchair wheels yeah. with um pictures of Frida Kahlo on them 
Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, and is really funking up her, her sort of access devices because, you know, these, these aren't things that we should be ashamed of. They should be things that we, you know, firstly, they give us freedom. Yep. No, this you're not wheelchair bound. It's a freedom machine. Exactly. Um, and, and and secondly, you know, they become part of us. You know, they should reflect our personality. You know, if everybody wore the same clothes, we'd look like prisoners. Exactly right. Yeah. I mean, because I have my own vanity. I want to look good. I want to, you know, I want it to be. If I'm wearing a nice suit, I don't want to have my just plain old white cane. And I think those are aspects of it. Like I'm not wearing my E1 watch. I don't know if you've heard about E1 which mm-hmm. is a universally designed watch. It's like yeah. it, it won the, what, the 2012 or 2011 design of the year. And it's just such a beautiful yeah. watch that not only is it, um, you know, uh, accessible for people who can't see, but it, it, it's accessible for those who can see. And it's a beautiful watch. And, and for me, I often talk about um, the watch being something that I, I was very important to me throughout my career. It, it, it was a symbol of success to me. And so when I couldn't use my watch anymore, couldn't see it, I, I felt really, I was like, oh man, this is just, I've lost a part of me. And I know it's very, you know, it's a kind of superficial, but I think we all have a superficial part to us. You know, we, we look at ourselves in the mirror. We want to dress, you know, dress nicely. And I think that's no different for people who can't see, can't see themselves yeah. in the mirror. Yeah. And, and, and the E1 is a, you know, an iconic piece of design. It's, it's, yes. it's both beautiful and functional and tactile. Yes. So, uh, so it's it you know it really is a fantastic piece of design, and 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 also, you know, I I think people make the false assumption that just because someone has no vision, that they're no longer interested in the visual. Yeah. Um. And and, and of course, people labour under the misassumption that you know because you're legally blind that you have no vision at all. So, um, you know, I I I've, we recently interviewed a, a chap that works in the Lego group, who was, you know, yes. a key visual designer for Lego, who also had RP. Um, and obviously it's got harder and harder, but he was, you know, engaged in making all of the decisions about the visuals. He has an acute sense of what good design is, what color is, all of this kind of stuff. So so I, I think that, that that's, a, you know, something that we, we need to really address that, that sort of, accessible design need not be ugly design that that you can actually do something that is beautiful and inclusive and all the rest of it and not make the assumptions that because someone is losing that vision that they don't want to use it yeah no exactly i mean i'll even use this platform right now to say ask your networker and your community if there's anybody who works at these fashion brands because like to me i've been trying to reach out to nike right now because I want to make, you know, it took me years to accept using my cane. But once it did, it opened up the entire world for me. And I start to think about young people who who don't have access to, um, you know, who aren't using a cane because they don't want us to be seen as different. But again, if I get a Nike cane or a Jordan branded cane, you know, all of a sudden that kid is no longer thinking about, oh, this is not cool. But saying, hey, this is just part of an extension to my my style. And I think that it'll open up. It, it breaks down that barrier to say this is a, you know, you know, that stigma of of not using it to really become a, a, a adoption tool. And um, because once I did it, it really did change my life. And so I've been trying to reach out to different brands. So if anyone in your community has anybody who connected to fashion brands, or um, you know, I'd love to talk to them about it because 
drip my cane was really about that and it's it's super cool and it and it really is um it helps raise awareness okay so we definitely um we'll try and make some connections for you <laughs> um but and maybe you can share some pictures of of the yeah the various different art uh in the canes both in our chat that's going to follow up and and also maybe for um, just generally, because I think that's that's super interesting. We've reached the end of our half hour. It came rather too quick. Um, um, I'm really looking forward to the conversation that we're going to have on Twitter. So thank you very much, John. It's been a real pleasure to meet you and hear your story. Um, we're going to be definitely staying in touch. So thank you. <laughs> thank you, Neil. Thank you, Antonio. This has been awesome. And and, and thank you also to my clear text for keeping us captioned. <laughs>